You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. So John chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. And um, I'm going to read down through verse 20. 23, John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will." The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Let us call on the Lord for His help. Heavenly Father, we do look to You this morning that You would be pleased, O Lord, to dispatch Your Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us, to instruct us, in many ways, uh, perhaps to challenge us, to encourage us. But, O oh Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to fill us with wonder for the person of Jesus Christ and through him that we may be filled of wonder for you, O oh triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask these things for your glory and for our own edification. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Last week, we, uh, we continued in our study of John's gospel, which found us moving into uh, John chapter 5. And if you look at verse 1 there, you'll see there's a feast of the Jews, and that is the occasion that brings Jesus back to Jerusalem. He had been in Galilee, and uh, the, 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 um, the scene of the story is at a pool called Bethesda, verse 2. Bethesda simply means a house of mercy. Some of you may have footnotes in your Bibles to that effect. And in verse 3, we see there's a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, all gathered there. Verse 5, one man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. And in verse 6, Jesus sees him lying there. And Jesus is aware, of course he's aware, that he's been there a long time. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? And notice how he answers in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, while I'm going, another steps down before me. And we talked about that a little bit last week. And um, you remember I was being a little bit ornery, and I asked you to look at verse 4. Uh, remember that. And Dustin was the first one, I think, to smile. Because <laughs> unless you have a King James translation, uh, verse 4 is probably in the margin notes of your Bible. If you have a King James translation, of course, verse 4 is there. But if you look at your margin, 
you'll see that um, verse 4 uh, says that uh, it goes waiting for the moving of the water, which would be a continuation of verse 3. Verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now, what's going on there is, as I said last week, some of the manuscripts do not contain verse 4. Some of the older manuscripts do not contain verse 4. And this leads scholars to believe that verse 4 was not part of the original. And it's not my purpose this morning to argue whether that is true or that is false. I just simply, by a matter of review, want to show you that verse 4 is contained in, and most of you probably have. How many do not have verse 4 in their margin? I mean, some of do not have verse 4 in their margin. Okay, some Bibles may not, but um, many Bibles actually, the ESV is faithful to put these verses to let the reader know, listen, some manuscripts can have these verses. Some don't. And I especially want to say this because sometimes when our youngsters go off to college or they go off to university, the skeptical professors will say, listen, you can't trust your Bible. It's got all kinds of errors in it. And they'll point to things like this. And if nobody's ever, nobody ever hears anything about this, that can be a two-before across the forehead to your faith. And what we need to understand here, as I said last week, if you go through, if you get a Bible that has these footnotes in it, you can start in Genesis 1 and read all the way to the end of, of Revelation, looking at each footnote. And when you do that, you'll discover that these, uh, these textual variants in no way challenge not even one single major Christian doctrine. And in fact, it doesn't even really have a, a, a massive effect on this particular story that we come to. I just want to point it out to you that it's there. So if someone were to come to you and they were to say, hey, um, find verse 4 for me in chapter 5. Um, I don't want anyone to be surprised by that. Now, what's going on here, verse 7, I, I'm led to believe that really, personally, I don't want to argue forcefully for it, but I'm, I'm really kind of led to believe that, that verse 4 is intact for a number of reasons that it's there. But again, I don't want to argue for that. But if you look at verse 7, after being asked if he wants to be healed, the man answers, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before him. So this is, this is going on. The water is being stirred by some way. Verse 4 tells us that it's being stirred by an angel who God dispatches for that purpose. And as the water is stirred, the first one into the water uh, is healed. And we have all these invalids and all these blind folks that are gathered around this pool, and I assume they're gathered around this pool for some reason. And I'm going to surmise that they've seen somebody be healed. The water is stirred. They go into the water and they're healed. Whether that is happening or not, we can't be uh, for certain. But one thing we can be for certain is these invalids are looking to that pool for hope. We can be sure of that, can't we? They're looking to the pool because at the end of the day, what hope do they have of being cured? Up until now, the only hope they have is getting into that pool. And along comes Christ Jesus, and he says to this man, do you want to be healed? And he says, there's no one to put me into the pool. And then notice what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, he says three things to him. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
Now, he's been an invalid for 38 years. What would that do to your muscles? As I commented last week, just being in bed for a week, I mean, what does that do to you? He's been invalid for 38 years. But all of a sudden, instantaneously, his strength has returned to him. And he does something he hasn't done in almost four decades. He stands up. And he actually not only stands up, but he has the strength to pick up his mat. And not only does he have the strength to pick up his mat, he has the strength to pick up his mat and walk with it. Instantaneously, he is healed. And the point of this is to show that this healing is not only instantaneous, but this healing is complete. It's complete. And this would be visible to all of the locals because how has this man made a living? Has Meals on Wheels showed up at the Pool of Bethesda? No. He, he, I guess we could say an ancient form of it has, but it's the man has made his living begging. And there were, probably, there were probably locals here. Being that the man was invalid for so long, there were probably many locals there that had never known him any other way than being laying down on that mat. They had never known him to be able to walk. They've never seen him walk. Now all of a sudden, he's walking around. You can imagine the bounce in his step as he's carrying that mat, walking around. In verse 9, we begin to see the whole point of this. If you look there at the end of verse 9, as I pointed out last week, the day was the Sabbath. And as I said last week, the healing of this man is not the major theme of this story. It's a wonderful theme, but it's not the major theme. The major theme is seen there at the very end of verse 9, that it was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Imagine hearing that. (laughs) Can you imagine the joy of this man carrying this mat, probably jumping around, bouncing around, moving his arms, moving his legs, moving his body, He's probably tossing the mat up in the air and catching it. Can you imagine? And then someone coming up and saying, hey, knock it off. It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to do this. What? Well, he answers in verse 11. He says, well, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Well, that's a pretty good response, isn't it? Because if he has the authority to heal me, then I probably ought to listen to him when he tells me to get up and walk. Then they ask, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? This has to be confusing. This has to be puzzling. Now, he didn't know. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus withdraw. He withdrew from the place And then afterwards, in verse 14, Jesus finds him in the temple, and he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And then in verse 15, what's he go and do? He goes and tells the the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And in verse 16, what do we find? This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And we spent some time looking at verse 17 last week. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, we need to keep verses 16 and 17 in mind 
as we continue on in chapter 5, we really need to keep verses 16 and 17 in mind in the backdrops of our mind uh, because what goes on in verses 19 and following is a response to verses 16 and 17. Jesus is responding. He begins the response in verse 17, but in verse, verses 19 and following, he's going to begin to flesh out verse 17. And notice the progression here. In verse 16, we see this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, you see, things are heating up from that first Passover in Jerusalem where Jesus cleanses the temple and the Jewish leadership comes to him and says, by what authority do you do these things? Okay, now things are heating up to the point that they want to terminate him. They want to kill him. They're looking for whatever opportunity they can, they can uh, discover in order to kill Christ Jesus. And why are they doing that? There's two basic charges. One is Sabbath breaking, which according to Old Testament law is punishable by death, and blasphemy, which according to Old Testament law is also punishable punishable by death. Now, last week we looked, has Jesus really broken the Sabbath? And I'm going to surmise, no, he's not broken the Sabbath. According to their man-made amendments to the Sabbath, he has broken their laws, but he has not broken God's laws. He has simply committed an act of mercy. And acts of mercy and acts of necessity were lawful on the Sabbath day. But in their estimation, he is a Sabbath breaker. And um, secondly, he's making himself equal with God. Is he doing that? Yes, he is. And we're going to see that in verses 19 and following, where he makes the case just for that. Now, in their estimation, he's, he's nothing more than a man. But they have to know more than that. Because think about When we were in chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, what does he say to Jesus? He says, we know that you're a man who comes from God, for no one could do these signs otherwise. He says, we know. He doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. So it's very clear because, first of all, how how do you heal this invalid? How do you heal an invalid? How do you heal someone who's been on their bed for 38 years instantaneously so that they can pick their bed up and dance around with it? I don't think for a minute he picked his bed up and he just casually walked around. Does anyone think that? He had to have been jumping for joy. How does he do this? They had to know there was something going on. But there's two basic charges here. He's making himself equal with God, and he is breaking the Sabbath. And it is to these two charges that Jesus now speaks. And if you look at verse 19, and this morning, I wanted to read down through verse 23, but we're not going to get any further than verse 19 this morning. I I think by the time we look at this incredible verse, uh, our minds are probably going to have had enough. Notice what Jesus says to them. Verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. 
Now, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I don't act independently of the Father. If you look at verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. So what he is saying here is, I don't run around doing independent acts from the Father. I'm not a rogue Messiah that goes and does as he pleases. I'm not just out on my own, just drumming up things to do, doing them willy and nilly. No. He says no to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his, only, of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And what we learn first here is that the Father and Son are one in terms of these activities, in terms of all activity. And we can think that through for a little bit, and we can say, you know something, we've already seen this many times. Because if you go to the prologue, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1 and following, there we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we know who the Word is. Verse 14 tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity who was with God, who is God. And notice in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, what is that teaching us? That is teaching us that it wasn't just simply the Father acting on his own when he said, let there be, and all appears. For there wasn't anything, not even a leaf, that has fallen from a maple tree. And I reference maple trees because I got lots of maple trees and there's lots of leaves in my gutters and there were lots of leaves in the yard. But not a single leaf that has been created has been created independently of the Son or for that matter, independently of the Holy Spirit. What we see is that when God labors... The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit labor in concert together in perfect unity. Now, the subject this morning is not the Holy Spirit. I just mentioned because we need to understand He is involved in all of this as well. But the subject this morning is the Son's. Well, we'll stick with the Son. But in terms of creation, there is not anything that has been made that has not been made through Christ Jesus. So we see in creation, we see the Father and the Son are operating perfectly in unity as they create. And as we think about the Sabbath day, what is really interesting, notice if we go back to John 5, and there Jesus answers them. He says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. Last week, the application that I made of that, which I think is the application we want to make of that, is that as Jesus is being accused of being a Sabbath breaker, Jesus answers them, listen, my father is working until now. You want to accuse me of being, a, of being a Sabbath breaker? You need to understand, my father is working until now. And if we go back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, we learn that the father rested from creating things on the seventh day, right? and proclaimed it. He rested on the seventh day. But did the Father rest from all work on the seventh day? Absolutely not. For the Father is working until now. How is he working until now? Our hearts are beating, right? 
Nothing in this life happens on its own. The lights aren't going to come on by themselves. Neither will our hearts beat by themselves. Who is keeping our hearts beating? God is keeping our hearts beating. He's the author and giver of life, is he not? I mean, God doesn't stop on the seventh day because he has a sun to keep shining. He has a planetary system to keep in motion and keep in its circuit that it needs. He, he, he has this whole world to uphold, which is the word that the Scriptures use. If you keep your place in John chapter 5, and if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, While you're turning there, I'll read a couple of verses. John Hebrews 1, verse 1, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. See, there's a, another place where we see that through the Son, the world is created. We've already seen that. But look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. We'll return to that in a few minutes. But notice that the Son is involved in the upholding of the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. God says, let there be. And the eternal word, if you will, upholds. He's involved in the creating of all things. He's involved in the upholding of all things. Jesus does what the Father does. The Son does what the Father does. Now, that leads us to a third thing that I want to bring up that we have. If we go back to John chapter 5 and verse 19, there's a third thing that's going on here too that is absolutely fascinating. And we, we do well not to skip over it. Notice that Jesus says, truly, truly. Now, again, let's keep verses 16 and 17 in our mind. Verses 16 and 17, they're, they're persecuting Jesus because he's doing these, thi these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Let's keep that in our minds. Jesus is responding to that. Verse 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus can see what the father is doing. I'll give you an illustration. If you turn to John 9, I made a reference last week to this chapter, but we didn't turn there. But if you look at John 9, there you see in verse 1 that Jesus and his disciples come across a man who is blind from birth. And in verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice how Jesus answers. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus can see what the Father is up to. Jesus can see what the Father is doing. Now, that cannot be said of anyone else, can it? I mean, sometimes, on occasion, the Lord may be pleased to show one of us something that He's about to do, perhaps. 
And on occasion, as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at the prophets, if you will, we could think of Daniel, for instance, where the Lord showed Daniel what he's going to do and showed Daniel the, uh, the activity of the nations that would come um, ahead. Sometimes he would show the prophets what he's going to do here and here and there, but it was always limited, wasn't it? And it wasn't perfectly clear. It generally was not perfect. Sometimes a, an event that's nearby might be perfectly clear to them, but not always. So we can't, to, to be able to see all that the Father is doing is not something that a saint can do. It's not something that a prophet can do. It's not something that even an angel can do, for the angels long to look uh, into the gospel, didn't they? But this is something that the Son can do. Jesus can see all that the Father is providentially doing in every event that is taking place. Now, I think a lot of us right now wanting to know, Lord, what in the world are you doing in the midst of this COVID-19 thing that we have happening here? And we can answer that in, in broad, with a broad brush. We can answer that in generalities, but we can't answer that in specifics, can we? But the Son sees all that the Father is doing. Of course he sees all that the Father is doing because he's in union with the Father doing it. It's absolutely incredible. And there we see, secondly, we see the Father and Son are one, but secondly, we see the Son's perfect submission. Submission is such an ugly word to our current culture. Because we can't get it in our heads how submission doesn't speak, doesn't mean inferiority. Well, it doesn't mean inferiority. We instantaneously come to the concept that if we're in submission, then that's, that's, that means inferiority. But I want to show you that it doesn't mean, it doesn't necessarily mean inferiority. Here we see the Lord Jesus submitting uh, to the Father. We see this submission. Now, there was, uh, on Wednesday night, we were talking about a, a uh, controversy that happened in the church in the fourth century known as the Arian controversy. And, and historians talk about that controversy as it was one of the, probably the greatest controversies that the church has ever seen, where a presbyter, a Libyan presbyter by the name of Arius, uh, he was very jealous to defend the fact that there's only one God and God is one. He couldn't reason how God could be how the Father could be God and the Son be God also. So he reasoned that the Son was a created being, a great created being, the first created being, uh, created before the worlds. And because by virtue of being the greatest created being and created before all worlds, one closest to the Father, and we all must go through him in order to get to the Father. And he would see texts like this as inferiority. Jesus can't be, uh, the Son cannot be God because, see, he's inferior. He's, he's inferior. We see this by this submission. Of course, that's all an error. That was, that was deemed by the Council of Nicaea, and then the, later the Council of Constantinople was heresy. And we defend that today as absolute heresy. Here we see in this submission, we see perfect sonship. I didn't say much about these verses, but if you look back to chapter 4 and you look at verses 32 and 34, 
And you'll remember the story. Jesus meets with the woman in Samaria at the well. He meets with her, and he reveals himself to her. She runs into the town to tell everybody that she has met the Christ, and he has been alone with her because the disciples have all gone to find food. And the disciples return, and they're at, they're, in verse 31, they're, at, they're, they're urging Jesus to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples say to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And in verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If we want a glimpse of what perfect humanity looks like, well, there is a glimpse of what perfect humanity looks like. Perfect humanity is submission, wholehearted submission to the Father. I know most of us like to eat, don't we? Food tastes good, doesn't it? And we generally want to eat more than we know we should, right? And Jesus is saying, listen, my will, my food is to do the will of the Father. We have to have food in order to survive. Food is important. But I think, and a lot of times you'll hear comments on verse 32 and 34 that here to Jesus, this is the most important thing, following the Father. That is 100% correct. But I think it's also the most satisfying thing for Jesus. Food is important for us. If we don't eat, we will die. We will starve to death. But God has, in his mercy and in his pleasure and his kindness, has, has made food and the act of eating to be a pleasurable experience. A satisfying experience. When the, hungs of pang, the pangs of hunger are met with a good meal, we are satisfied, aren't we? And I think we should also see in verse 32 and 34 a certain satisfaction. A certain satisfaction. And here's what perfect humanity looks like. It is submission to the Father as the most important thing in life and as the most satisfying thing in life. But in our sinfulness, we immediately stain it. We immediately call it inferiority. It's because we are rebels at heart. That's why. That's what's wrong with us, is we are rebels at heart. And we hear submission. Rebels do not want to submit to anything or to anyone. That's what the problem is. Now, that's completely what the problem is. But here we see perfect humanity. Uh, Jesus submitting to the Father. But in thirdly, again back to chapter 5, verse 19. There's so much in this verse. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, <laughs> What do we make of this? Well, Jesus can see all that the Father is doing. That is something that no one else can do. To see how the Father is working in every event that takes place. To be able to see specifically and accurately and completely and exhaustively what the Father is up to in all events in time and history. Jesus can see these things. He sees all that the Father does. Only God only God could do that. But notice what Jesus says. For what the Father does, that the Son does likewise. 
Now, no one can see what the Father is doing. How many can do what the Father is doing? Can a saint who's gone before us do all that the Father's done? Can a saint say, let, the, let light shine in the darkness and light shine in the darkness? The answer is no, that's absurd. Can an angel do that? No. Can the Father do that? Yes. How about the Son? You see that in verse 19? For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And it's verses like this where we get the doctrine that we've been studying on Wednesday night, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons, and that they're all equal in power and glory. They're equal in power and glory. So you see this submission that Jesus is displaying to the Father is an act of love, not inferiority. Love. What the Father is always doing is perfect. Jesus is perfect. Therefore, he can't do anything else but perfection, which is what the Father is doing. I told you when we were done with verse 19, our minds would have enough. This stretches our minds, doesn't it? But in a wonderful way, as we think about who is Jesus, well, he's equal to God. And fourthly, he perfectly reveals the Father. Follow this logic, if you will. If Jesus is always doing what the Father is doing, and then what we see Jesus doing is the same thing the Father does, well, then Jesus is revealing the Father, isn't he? We can't see what the Father is doing, but at the pages of Scripture, we can see what Jesus is doing. And as Jesus does exactly what the Father does, we can see the Father being revealed by Jesus. And if we go back to verse 16 and 17, they're persecuting Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And last week we said, what is, what is the Father working to accomplish? Well, the irony of it all is, as Jesus is being accused of being a Sabbath breaker, as Jesus is being accused of a crime, he is busy laboring, working in concert with the Father to reveal a crime. What is the crime? Heartless, Christless, lifeless religion. It is only heartless and Christless and lifeless religion that can walk up to a man who's been invalid for 38 years and scold him for carrying his mat. That's a hard heart. Jesus could have, as I said last week, Jesus could have healed this man on Thursday or Friday or Sunday or Monday, but he didn't because the whole purpose was to reveal this heartless, lifeless, Christless religion. So he heals him on Saturday, on the Sabbath. Knowing that he's going to be carrying his mat around, and these characters are going to scold him for carrying his mat around, and it's going to, it's going, it's going to unfold and unravel the whole thing, isn't it? Jesus can see what the Father is doing. Jesus can do nothing else but what the Father does. 
Isn't that amazing? So we see the Father and Son are one. We see the Son's perfect submission. We see Jesus is equal to God. And we see that Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. Jesus would tell his disciples that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in Hebrews 1, verse 3, we saw that Jesus was the, is the radiance of the Father. That is radiance, light. Light is used metaphorically for the glory of the Lord. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is being accused of being a Sabbath breaker. He puts that to rest. He's being accused of making himself equal with God. Spot on. That's exactly what he's doing. But he's not committing blasphemy because he is equal with the Father. And that's who we serve. That's who saved us. That's who came to us while we were rebelling and kicking against him. That is who gave us new hearts. That is who gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, O Lord, for these wonderful truths that you have set forth in your word. We thank you, O Lord, that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us, your creatures, in such a way that we might understand. We thank you that you have given us this gospel of John, that you've given us your word. We thank you, O Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit operating in our hearts that we may understand and we may see. And, O Father, we pray lastly that you'd fill us with wonder. Fill us with wonder, O Lord, over the person of Christ Jesus. And through Christ Jesus, we'd be filled with wonder of you, O Father, and of you, O Holy Spirit. O Father, our lives would be uh, devoted. And, O Lord, we pray that you would eradicate from our hearts and our lives this notion that submission is inferiority. O Lord, we pray that we see that this beautiful submission that Jesus renders to you, O Father, is what perfect humanity does. And, O Lord, we thank you. Lead us in this posture. Remove a that remnant of rebellion that, resist, that exists in our hearts, O Lord, that we too may walk and live for your will, and that we too may say thy will be done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.